number of months ago, I, I began thinking about the message today, and that's kind of odd. I don't always get months ahead, but um, I was just thinking about the, as I was reading through the Gospels, like I just kept encountering Pharisees and religious leaders, which we all know that they're pretty, pretty prevalent in the Gospels in their role. And I just thought, okay, I, I've taught on them before, I've thought about them before, but it just struck me how many references there were to them. There were just so many. And 20 centuries later now, here we are, and we have a mental picture of what Pharisees are, don't we? We kind of have this image in our mind of what they look like. I have a painting for us to kind of maybe relate to it and kind of this grumpy old men, or in this case, it might be like an ancient rap group. You know, I don't really know what's going on there, but... Um, or perhaps maybe, maybe the next picture, you know, is kind of what we imagine, right? We imagine these sort of grouchy, you know, very angry, mean-looking people, and maybe rightfully so. And a few examples from the scriptures, I won't have these on the screen, but just a, a couple passages from Matthew. Matthew 12, 14, but the other Pharisees went out and plotted how to, they might kill Jesus. So we, we read verses like that, right? 16.21, I must go and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. 16.6, these are all from Matthew. Jesus said to them, be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. 15.1, the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Good question, right? Matthew 25.15, the Pharisees went out and laid a plan to trap him in his words. 23.13, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you brood of vipers. 26.3, the chief priests and the elders assembled together and they schemed to arrest Jesus. And then Matthew 27.20, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to have Jesus executed. There's this, this continual, listen, I just read obviously a small, small fraction of the references just in the book of Matthew. And if you read through the Gospels, this is over and over again. And there's a clear disconnect, isn't there, between Jesus and this religious establishment, which is sort of portrayed through the titles of Pharisee, religious leader, teachers, elders. And here we are today, and we have elders, and we have teachers, and we have, you know, pastors. And, and, and so there's still this culture of religious leadership, but in the, in the, in, in the Bible, this culture, there's something fractured about it. And there's something that's really broken about it. I want to show you another picture. Um, this is a painting of a, of a, of a rabbi. And uh, in first century Israel, the religious culture was led by rabbis. And becoming a rabbi was not an easy task. You had to become a disciple of another rabbi. And to become a disciple, it was not easy to do. You had to be top of your class. You had to, you had to probably win the Bible trivia challenge. You, had to, you, know, you, you slept in your yarmulke. You ate, slept, and and drank the Torah. This is who you were. And the disciple of a rabbi is very bright, very devoted, and disciples grow up to become rabbis, and rabbis grow up to become Pharisees. And Pharisees were the religious leaders and teachers of the day. And they were actually honored among the people. So it's so interesting. We have this 21st century look at these people, but there's something else going on in the day that it was written so we're going to look at Luke 8, 8, 18, starting in verse 9. Jesus speaks to this thing that he's come to change. And hopefully this will be good for us all today. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Which, by the way, tax collector is another 
title that's interesting to look at, right? The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Okay, so our first reaction to this passage uh, is probably, man, this Pharisee is like a class A jerk, right? Like, I mean, this is what we think of him. Uh, but I do want to press pause for a moment because I want to look at a few things that were actually said in this passage and we're going to talk about. It. Anyway, so let's pay attention to what he said. We're going to go back. You can go back to the, the verse before. Yeah, so I, it's a little bit down. After he says, starts praying, he says, God, I thank you. So who does he give credit to right at the beginning of the prayer? God, right? He begins with thanking God and obviously saying thank you that a couple things. One, that I'm not evil, <laughs> is what he basically says. Thank you, I'm not evil. Thank you, I'm not a bad person. Thank you that you've done this in my life. And I'm not even like this tax collector. And so we read it and we're like, man, this guy, this is just the wrong way to pray or, or whatever. But this isn't so far off of what we pray sometimes. Like, God, protect me from evil. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be a bad person. I don't want to be, you know what I mean? Like, protect my children. Don't make them this, don't make them this or that. And, and so we say these signs of pr prayers, maybe not in these exact words, but they're not maybe too far off. Then he goes on and he says, I give... What does he say? He says, I, I, I fast and I, and I give. And this guy does it a lot, actually. He, it was pretty typical for a Pharisee to fast once a week. How many times does he do it? Twice a week. And then he gives a tenth of all I get, not just what I, you know, maybe earn. I mean, this is like a picture of saying, if I, get, like, if I go to the vineyard and I get some extra grapes, I'm going to give a tenth of that, too. Like, I'm giving everything uh, the way you've in accordance to. So he, this guy goes above and beyond. And the people listening are thinking, this Pharisee is a good person. He's a good man. He's devout. He's committed to the Lord. He knows the Torah. And the Pharisee's prayer to the people that are listening does not startle them. It's not, that's not what's startling to them. It's, it's kind of takes us, you know, as we read it through our lens of religious leaders, we're like, this, this startles us. This is not what bothered them. When we read this, we're bothered by his words of thanking God that he's not like other people, but that's not what startles first century Jews who are listening. It's the next part where Jesus starts to kind of shake things up that is startling to them. So, of course, he goes to the tax collector, the most hated scum of the earth, as we've talked about already in the series. But in verse 13, which is the next slide, yeah. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. Stood at a distance, meaning he wouldn't go into the temple all the way. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other, went home justified before God. So do you want to know what startled the first century listener in this whole story? It was actually one word. It was this one, justified. This is what startled them. Jesus said that the Pharisee was justified and not the tax collector. Now, if you don't know what justification is, the theological definition of justification is the action of making righteous in the sight of God, meaning that you are now holy and cleansed and able to come into the presence of God. You are justified in being in his presence. And so what makes you justified to be in the presence of God? Well, all the people listening are like, no, 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 Jesus, you don't understand. If, if the Pharisee's not justified, then none of us can be. If the Pharisee hasn't been justified, none of us can be. What do you mean the tax collector 
is justified. It was hard for them to understand, but Jesus is actually telling them really good news, like really, really, really gospel good news here because he's saying, listen, none of you can justify yourself. Only God can justify you. Only I can justify you. And this is actually something critical to the idea of Jesus coming and changing things. When I first started working in ministry back in the mid-90s, <clears throat> it's actually late 90s. How many of you guys, um, these were the days of Saved by the Bell, In Sync, Chris Farley comedy, Michael Jordan, the GOAT. <clears throat> Any other fans of the 90s? Okay. Like, not many. Um, people skip the 90s. It's like 80s rule. and Nobody talks about the 90s. But back in those days, there was an evangelistic tactic that had been used for a while. And it was kind of fading out in the 90s. And it was a question you'd ask someone if you were trying to lead them to the Lord. And the question was this. If you died in a freak accident tonight, you guys know this? If you died in a freak accident tonight, do you know if you'd spend eternity in heaven or hell, right? It was this real heavy question, right? And uh, it was certainly straight to the point. A lot of people were ready for it, but a lot of people weren't ready for it and it had a mixed bag of effectiveness. And anyway, today, questions are different, and we don't necessarily go straight to that one. Um, but for the heck of it this morning, let's apply the question to the Pharisee and the tax collector, Okay. Let's say they die in a freak accident. Some rogue chariot runs over them. It's a big one, like SUV of chariots, three rows, the whole bit. Runs over them, they both die, and they go to heaven. Well, they go to judgment right before God. And God says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? Well, what is the Pharisee going to say? He says, well, God, you should let me into your heaven because I'm not a tax collector. I'm not a liar. I'm not an evildoer. I, 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 I listen to Caleb every day. I, I don't know. I... I try to go to church early and sometimes twice a week. I, I tithe and I fast and I, I do all these things. I go above and beyond for you, God. The problem with the Pharisee's thinking, of course, is, as we all know, that he thought it was a spiritual commitment that justified him. He thought it was his dedication to acts of, acts of faith that would justify him before God and give him right standing. And God looks at the Pharisee and says, uh-uh, nope. And then, of course, the tax collector who died in the freak's accident as well, he doesn't even want to come in to the throne room of God. Remember, he stood from a distance. He doesn't even want to come in, so the angels have to drag him in. And he says, so, tax collector, why should I let you into my heaven? And he says, oh, I, I don't know that you should. I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy. The only way I'm getting in is by your mercy. The only way I'm getting in is by the work that you did for me. God looks at the tax collector and says, justified, you can come in. You see, this is the mantra, if you will, and the hope of every Christ follower. Christ alone. It's by Christ alone that we are saved. And if we feel justified or in right standing, because of what we do, we are falling into the same trap as the Pharisees. And, and, and I'm saying this, and it's really big and ethereal, but we're going to get very real. You see, the Pharisees wanted to do the right thing, as we all do. And they actually became so committed to the right thing that they forgot that the journey towards God is actually not one of works, but one of the heart. And I think for a lot of us, we forget that. We forget, they, they, they forgot that they weren't even worthy to even aspire to justifying themselves 
Remember what John the Baptist said? He says, he comes, he says, there's one coming whose who's, who's sandals uh, I'm even unworthy to tie. And it was sort of this heart that Jesus was actually starting to portray with him. I, I want to show you another um, painting. I guess this is the day of paintings. Um, but this is a painting, and, and it's kind of hard to tell what's going on here, but maybe you can grasp it. But hanging in a Berlin uh, gallery is a really unusual piece of art by the, the artist. His name was Adolf Menzel. And what he's portraying in this piece, and he was trying to portray, was a king and his generals. And in this case, it was the Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia, everybody's favorite king of a Middle Ages country that no longer exists, right? <laughs> Prussia. Um, but anyway, he stopped painting it in the middle of, of doing it. And the story goes that he realized after he had gotten so far into it, there's a lot of detail work and the generals and everything. As he got into it, uh, there was a, there was, something is missing, obviously, from this from this painting, and, and the, the main gap you see over here is where the king is supposed to be. And he stopped painting it when he realized that he had painted with such detail that the posture and the stature and the presence of the generals was going to be greater than that of the king. And he said, hmm, I messed up, and he quit. And I think this is such a great picture for us as believers. From the moment of our salvation, right, there's this idea that I'm going to make Jesus the king of my life. And to a certain extent, I'm sure we have, um, but we spend a lot of time on the details of not only ourselves, who maybe we could call the generals, (laughs) but the peripheral issues and the secondary things. And there's a great intention to someday get to to the work and the centrality of Jesus in our life, but we just, we can't quite get there. You know what I'm saying? And there's this, there's this gap. And so the great question for us is, do we take up so much time and so much of our de- in the details and the peripheral issues and the secondary issues that we, that we lose the central character to who, who Jesus should be in, his, in our life through the presence, the posture, and the stature of our king? So today, what, as we even try and unpack this, as I even thought about Pharisees, like, where they had such a breakdown was this cry, what Jesus was trying to say to them. You can't do this, but by, by me, through me, you can. And so the, the, the cry of this is that, is Christ alone, right? Christ alone justifies you, protects you. Christ alone is, is who you go to when you need something. It's Christ alone that you can depend on. We can go on and on about all these things but it's called solo Cristo. You got to roll the R. Solo Cristo. Everybody say solo Cristo. Cristo. It's just fun to say that. It's a Latin term, which means by Christ alone, which is one of the five defining characteristics of the Protestant Reformation. Giving you a little bit of history. Most of you probably know this, even if you don't know this. Reformation, it's part of one of the five defining characteristics of the Protestant Reformation and the basic belief that salvation is obtained first through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And I, th- I, th- I think we get this. This is central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but I think sometimes we don't quite get it because we spend so much time on the peripheral, secondary things in life that we continue to forget that it's by Christ alone and we're leaving the central character unfinished. Jesus came. Jesus came to take the weight off people. Jesus came and said, you can stop striving. 
And I'm just curious, does anyone in this world, or in this, in this room, excuse me, feel like they've been striving a lot? And I'm not even talking spiritually, I'm just talking about life. When I think about growing up, and, and some of you are like this, when I think about growing up in my life, I think about all the things that I strive to be. Just strive to get people to like me. Strive to accomplish things, to feel like I've earned the right to be respected. Think about all the things, whether it be activities or sports or things that you did that we strived to achieve something, to become something, to be respected by people, to be liked by people. And we spend all this time and energy on the detailed work of how we look to others and how we're received in this world. And I wonder, just wonder if this is what Jesus was coming to say, you know what, you, you, I want to I take the weight off of you for a second. I, I want to take the weight off of you and I want you to quit relying on the work that you can do and your self-righteousness and instead, I want you to understand that you don't have to achieve more. Jesus said, you don't, you don't have to strive with me. I'm going to do the work if you'll let me. And this is the great challenge for us. Because we live in a world of comparison. Believe it or not, comparison is not a new thing in the world of social media likes and followers. It's not. It's right here in the passage we just read, isn't it? The guy is comparing himself to someone else in order to do what? Justify himself. Thank you that I'm not like this guy. And I wonder how many of us base our commitment to Jesus off of comparison to others. What I mean is we feel good or bad in comparison to how we stack up against others in their spiritual life. And we somehow, just follow me for a second, and more than likely we feel satisfied and we find our satisfaction in our comparison. What I mean is, if we feel like we stack up to everyone else, or at least close enough, we feel like we've achieved something, we've checked a box. We're doing what everyone else does, therefore we're living like most people and we can say we've checked the box, right? We're exceeding what other people do. Maybe some of you in here say, well, I do more than most people do. I go to church more than most people do. Therefore, I'm doing good. Comparison is this weird thing, just so you know. It can defeat us. Anybody ever felt defeated in comparison? It can defeat us and we feel less than. Or it can actually justify, and I think we think about that one more than anything. Oh, don't compare yourselves because you're going to be defeated. But it can also justify us in the decisions we are making when we feel better than others. Comparison will even lead us to do things, doesn't it? Comparison, what are they doing? Oh, I better do that or not do that or whatever it is, right? So comparison leads us, it defeats us, it satisfies us. It's a strange thing. Think about the way you live in comparison to others and the ways you find satisfaction rooted in that comparison. This one's actually really, really 
a hard one to just spend some time with, and I would just encourage you to do it. Like, is this like, is this like in my identity? Because today I'm hoping that I can just help us all kind of stop the insanity that we sometimes live in, that we're striving and we're comparing. We aren't better than them, they aren't better than us, and it's not even about them and us. We all equally need Jesus, and without him, we miss everything. That's the thing. A few years ago, there was a film came out. It was called, it won a couple Oscars, uh, I think, I think a couple Oscars, one Oscar, I think. Theory of Everything. Um, anybody remember this movie? Raise your hand if you remember this movie. Yeah, like seven of us. That's kind of how most Oscar-winning movies go. Nobody watches them, <laughs> right? So anyway, this story is about a world-renowned, a world-renowned physicist, Stephen Hawking, who died, I believe, last year. If you guys know Stephen Hawking and who that is. Um, he had a belief that there was one simple physiological equation to explain everything. That's the theory of everything. And he believed that he could actually find, because he was an atheist, he didn't believe that there was a God, he believed that he could actually find some sort of scientific equation that would explain our existence in the world around us. And he, he searched all things, he searched, of course, all types of physics and astronomy and other forms of science. And, and in the end, he, you know, he, of course... He never found that answer. And I'm watching the movie, and I'm thinking, how crazy is this? He's looking for Jesus. Which, by the way, his wife, his first wife found, and he rejected. And there's this thing that he kept describing, and I was like, he's talking about Jesus, and he, he just won't, he won't embrace it. And to many, here's the thing, to many, the, the, the idea that Jesus is the equation to everything, Jesus is the theory for everything, that sounds foolish to the wise, right? But Jesus is saying, I am the equation to everything. And what does he say later? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's this thing that we can <clears throat> so easily be distracted from Jesus being the center. A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Missionary Alliance, which most of you probably haven't heard of, but it was a missional movement that became a denomination. He wrote these words, <clears throat> Listen to this. He says, I wish I, could, I wish I could speak to you about Jesus and Jesus only. I often hear people say, I have got it. And I ask them, what have you got? The answer is sometimes I've got the blessing. Sometimes it is I've got the theory. Sometimes it is I've got the healing. Sometimes I've got the sanctification. But I thank God we have been taught that it's not the blessing. It's not the healing not the sanctification, it's not the thing, it's not the it that you want, but it is something better. It is the Christ, it is himself. Even in Christianity, right, we replace Jesus for the things of Jesus. And we pursue the things of Jesus more than we pursue Jesus himself. Let's think about the Apostle Paul for a moment. What was Paul? Paul was first a Pharisee, wasn't he? He was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. And before his conver conversion, um, he, he was just like this Pharisee that was praying in this, in this temple that we just read about. But then he has this experience, of course, on the road to Damascus, and everything changes, and he starts painting a different picture for his life. And listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse, verse number 8. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. 
I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. We, if you've been in church, you've heard this verse. I love these words. Listen to them. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I've let it all go. I consider them garbage, rubbish, that I may gain Christ. And then in verse 13, which is just a few verses later, he says, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ, or for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So his goal, his, his, his whole focus, the whole thing he's going after is to win Christ, right? He's counted everything lost. Everything is garbage. Nothing matters to him except Jesus. And I know that that's a tall order for us in this world. It is. But when I see the call of Jesus and what he calls people to, it's that hard to say, you know what? Nothing compares to Jesus. So when you look at the Pharisees and religious leaders and what struck me about them and how their presence is there, I mean, all that kind of stuff. The prominent role they play in the, in the Gospels, I think, comes maybe down to this. It's largely because they did what people do. <laughs> There's a tension we create with the wrong posture and the paths we can get on. You see what happens is we, and see if this, see if this is us, see if this is you. We get a hold of faith. We place our faith in Jesus. And then we try and control it instead of surrender to it. We try and make Jesus the object of our work and accomplishment instead of the object of our worship and gratitude. We compare our spirituality to others and allow that to justify who we are. That was really good, Tim. You should say that again. Oh, okay. We get a hold of our faith, right? We place our faith in Jesus we try and control it instead of surrender to it. We try and make Jesus the object of our work and accomplishment instead of the object of our worship and gratitude. And we try to compare ourselves to others in order to justify who we are and what we do. Pharisees represent something in the scriptures that we all face in life. Jesus can easily become a religion. Pharisees represent that we can easily exalt ourselves instead of God. We can compare ourselves to others to justify what we do and who we are. And we try and check the religious boxes that we feel like are necessary in life instead of straining towards Jesus. Jesus knew what it would take to turn the religious culture of the Pharisees and turn it on its head and start to show them something different about life. So he takes the example of the worst of the worst, right? The tax collector, the one who was hated by all of culture. And he says, you know what? I'm gonna make him the one that's justified. I'm gonna invite the tax collector to be my disciple, one of my 12. Because I think he wanted to tell us, I'm trying to tell you something really good. No matter what, any one of you can be justified before God by the work and grace of Jesus in a surrendered life. That's what he's saying. So, <laughs> today is sort of like, I, I know it's, it's, it's coming at you with this 
sort of central piece that a lot of us think we understand about the centrality of Jesus in the gospel and the centrality of Jesus in our salvation. I, I get it. But we don't go, here's where I think we, we, we need to hear that. We don't go and do the things of Jesus because we need to go and earn anything or prove anything. Jesus has done and proven everything. But here's what I see happening alive in this culture is that we have to say this. We go to church because we want to go to church. We don't go to church because we feel like we need to go to church or have to go to church. We, we worship the Lord because we want to. Not because we have to, not because we feel like we got to go and raise our hands so we feel better about our relationship with the Lord. We worship him because we want to. We go to church because we want to. We, we gather with other believers because we want to. We, we actually sacrifice and we serve the poor and we, and we do the things like bringing life to a city and, and seeking prayer and revival and those sort of things because we want to, not because we feel like we have to. Not because we feel like, oh, that'll justify us and make us feel better about who we are in Christ. No, it's because we want to. We don't have to feel obligated. We don't have to feel some sort of responsibility to do our part. So here we are 25 weeks into talking about Jesus because we actually wanna make him the center of the painting we are painting. We actually want to give attention to the detail of Jesus and his presence and his posture and his stature and the greatness he deserves. Because I'm hopeful that all of us would agree that Jesus is the equation to everything. He is the theory to everything. And it's Jesus alone that we surrender to. So I don't know where you're at today, but I, I just know this. I know that the great tension in life Can you go back to that picture of uh, Prussia? The great tension in life is to, is to intend for Jesus to be king, but to spend all the details and time on ourselves. Are you with me now? So let's, let's, uh, let's bow our heads. I'm going to read a passage over us that I've probably read three or four times over the past 25 weeks. It's from Hebrews 12. It says, let us run with perseverance the race marked. Let me just start over. Everybody's heads bowed. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he says this, consider him, consider Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners. But I want you to consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I hope and pray today that, uh, that we can all just fix our eyes on him, we won't grow weary or lose heart. In a moment, we're going to sing. The altar's open. And if you just want to, I just hope that there's some honest, humble prayers today requesting his mercy and his forgiveness and thanking Jesus for all he's done, saying, Lord, I want to make you center. If you want to pray with people, our prayer team will be here. But let's just 
allow these next few moments to be a time of response to him through prayer and song. So God, we just pray now that as we take these truths, that Lord, you would just uh, speak to us about them. The Lord, it would, it would cause good, righteous um, conviction in us to go and pursue you as you, as you invited us to. So God, we love you. We, we, we trust you. We, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.